Okay, so tell me what you just said. Sure. Um, so as I as Sati's get been getting stronger, um, I've been I've realized more and more how much a lot of what I'm doing is um, like entertaining my restlessness or doing stuff to avoid my restlessness. Um, so as that restlessness has gone down um i've been um, taking things slower like the smaller things um enjoying time outside um and um um just watching things or being a little more curious um about like smaller things um that i'm starting to notice So, congratulations on that, that this is actually one of the major insights that people have. This is, in fact, what they set students up for in the retreat. When uh, the retreat managers say, okay, give me all your books, tablets, telephones, laptops, anything that you use to spend your time with, put it in the box there, and you can have it at the end of the retreat. In a way, they're inviting the students to go nuts. Because of why? Because the actual thing that's going on is, is that people uh, in our society live with a great deal of um, anxiousness, anxiety, and then the suttas is referred to as restlessness in the sense that we're not at rest, we're not at peace, that we've got things to do, we've got places to go, we've got stuff to do, we've got people to meet, we've got, you know, problems to solve. Those problems are not going to solve themselves, we've got to go out there and do it. Hup, two, three, four, hup, two, three, four, you know? And yeah. so we have that mechanism inside, and that um, basically it runs the lives of most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are basic human drives uh, that Eric Byrne had uh, mentioned. Uh, he calls them the five drivers. Actually, one of the students of, of Byrne came up with this. His name is KB Taylor. And KB came up with five drivers. He called them try hard, hurry up, please me, be strong, and be perfect. And you can see that these things are there, but the one that we're talking about now is hurry up. Mm -hmm. That's the restlessness. And it is a deep fetter coming from the fact that things are unsettled and um, are in a state of agitation. What we as humans do is, is that when that agitation happens on the inside, we think that that is a trigger to make us do something agitated on the outside. Yeah. Okay. For me, because of the background that I had of uh, our first bicycle delivering of newspapers and then uh, getting a motorbike, and then the bigger and the bigger and the bigger motorbike, and that my restlessness and hurry up in the morning to get those papers delivered wound up uh, putting me basically on the, um, on the racetrack, and every highway was a racetrack. Mm -hmm. And that I have seen that over the years, 
um, that when I had to go someplace that had an appointment, like for instance here on the island, to picking someone up, a friend at the at the port, and he calls and says, "Okay, the boat just landed. Now say I'll be there in ten minutes." Mm-hmm. That's when the anxiety starts. Right? Got something to do. Got some place to go. Got uh, uh, and so getting in touch with that anxiety and allowing us to breathe deeply into it so that then we can do whatever we're going to do, in this case, driving the car, and we can drive it safely because people who are in a hurry are dangerous out there on the road. Yeah. Yeah. They don't understand that. It took me a long time to figure out that I was the most dangerous person on this highway. Wherever I was, I was the most dangerous person there. Why? Because I was in a hurry. And why was I was in a hurry is not because of the actual clock or deadlines or time. It was because I was internally in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And that the motorbike or the truck was actually a trigger. So that any time I got into the truck, there that anxiety would be. Sure. Yeah. Like... Uh, so I recently went back into an, like an environment like school that like with friends that I haven't been with in a while. I, um, I similarly noticed those anxieties starting to pop up like that. I hadn't had time to or I didn't reflect on in the same way that I am doing now, like on past things. Exactly. Well, you see, when we get ourselves into a state of restlessness, anxiety, uptightness, uh, in a hurry, we don't have time. No, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And so this is what the Anapanasati is so valuable for, is to stop and take a look at what's going on on the inside, to recognize that that stuff is unwholesome. Being in a hurry is dangerous. It does have gratification to it that we get it done, but the danger is there. And so we have to start understanding that we need to make a cost-benefit analysis. That um, uh, business, if it doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis, in other words, if the CEO says, oh, I want to buy that company because if I don't, they'll grow and be very big and then they'll be our competition, I better go buy them now. If he doesn't do a proper cost benefit analysis, he may get overcharged. Those people will make their money off of him now. They're competing with him right now rather than in the future. And he goes ahead and buys that company, and that costs him so much money that he actually loses the company that he's got because he's not doing the correct cost benefit analysis. He's going by desire instead. Well, even if that CEO of that company is doing correct cost-benefit analysis for the company that he's buying, when he goes home, he's not doing that cost-benefit analysis anymore. Now he's going by sure desire, greed, want, only seeing the benefits and stuff and not seeing the cost. And Well, that's exactly what happens when people get into a hurry. They think that all the benefit will be if I go ahead and get in a hurry and get this done, then I won't feel like that I'm in uptight and anxious anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's the benefit. And then we don't see uh, uh, the danger. 
yeah. once we begin to see the danger, that's only when we can begin to see the escape. Oh, this restlessness, this anxiety is to be dealt with directly so that I can get rid of the anxiety now rather than having to be a slave and go drive the truck fast. <laughs> okay. So this is the new way of looking at it. We're doing that cost-benefit analysis by looking at it way this restlessness in and of itself is unwholesome. So the cost-benefit analysis is in terms of like suffering and non-suffering, wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. Precisely. Exactly. That uh, the Buddha uh, uses words in the Pali that are translated uh, quite correctly as a discrimination. To discriminate or to see the difference by uh, putting everything on a kind of a mental scale. Is this wholesome or not? Mm -hmm. If I do this, will things benefit and increase? Or if I do this, will things degenerate and decrease? That's the cost-benefit analysis that we have. And when we start doing that on a regular basis, we begin to see things in new ways. We begin to see the dangers in doing those things, and so we don't do them so much anymore. Yeah. So I'm really glad to hear that you're moving along, that you're gaining some benefit that you're making some progress. You're beginning to see restlessness as restlessness rather than as marching orders. Yeah, certainly. And I've, I, like, it's almost an alarm when I feel like uh, my, my foot start to clench, for example. That's a big one. Or um, my, my jaw tighten. Like, those are two mm -hmm. things where I go, I'm restless. Like, and, then I, and then I'll come to realize that there was some, like, anxious thought. That's right. That, that's something else that's, uh, that's useful for noticing, and that is, is that when we have ourselves in, into whatever emotional state, the emotions themselves have bodily chemistry associated with them, which means then that the emotions that we feel can be actually felt in the body if we pay attention to it that we feel them both in the mind and in the body, that, uh, that there are mental components and physical components for uh, restlessness. An example of, of restlessness would be uh, a small amount or a larger amount of cortisol and or adrenaline in the body. Yeah. That, uh, that we get ready to do something and that uh, these are instinctual things in the sense that uh, the feelings that you had now are the same kind of feelings that a human being would have 100,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But the circumstances have changed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and because of that, the kinds of things that we would do 100,000 years ago uh, at that time, which would be quite appropriate for the situation here, it's not appropriate at all. No. Yeah. Okay. For instance, back then, the right thing to do at that moment is throw a spear. Mm -hmm. In this society, it's almost never to our advantage to throw a spear. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yet, yet we still do it. 
<laughs> okay, so the times have changed, but the human psyche has not changed. No, yeah, exactly. Which means that the instinctual behaviors that we had 100,000 years ago that kept us alive and, and gave us survival, those same survival skills now are quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when people exhibit uh, survival skills in front of a cop, the cop will probably kill them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have to recognize that our survival skills are, are quite inappropriate in certain cases. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we have to do that discernment. What's the cause benefit? Yeah. Do I follow my instincts or is my in because at one time following my instincts was exactly the right thing to do. Now following my instincts may be creating quite a dangerous situation. And so does that is that cost benefit done when someone wakes up or is it like something that's done once and then once you recognize something um you've already made that cost-benefit analysis, so it's obvious it's unwholesome. Oh, that's a really, really good question. And the answer to that has to do with the understanding of one's right view. Mm -hmm. The Buddha talks about right view uh, as if it were the most important thing of all. Yeah. When he talks about the Eightfold Noble Path, he says right view comes first. And that right view comes first as a prerequisite or a preliminary item for the outcome is going to be in the Pali of Sama area Samati. But the way that we want to translate that is not into an, uh, a, a concentrated mind. The better way of looking at it is a unified mind. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of view that we have is the kind of view that will make us whole. And the kind of views that don't make us whole make us scattered. These would be unwholesome views. Right? So, um, the viewpoints actually change on a regular basis depending upon circumstances, which means now that we have to take on right view as part of the practice, the right view, right sati, and right effort run and circle around each other in the sense that when we remember, sati is the first thing that happens. Therefore, it's the skill that needs to be developed. But along with that will be the development of right view. Now, here's how right view is developed is with right effort that we take the effort to investigate the view. Is this a wholesome view or not? And if it's a wholesome view, then we will take it on. And if it's not a wholesome view, then we will turn it into a wholesome view. Mm -hmm. Okay. We also do that with the thoughts. So that when we see a thought that's unwholesome, then we'll change that to a wholesome thought. And over time of changing the wholesome, unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts, we'll begin to modify the view so that we see things more and more in a wholesome way. But the point that we're making is the answer to your question, and that is that one's right view by ordinary people in ordinary standards is, is that after something is investigated, the conclusion is drawn and we know what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. Therefore, can stop. Guess what? 
The world isn't like that. No. We do not need to come to permanent conclusions because nothing is is permanent. Mm-hmm. So we have to recognize everything is in turmoil. Everything is in flux, which means every moment now is a new moment to do a new investigation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Taking the right effort to make sure that, that it is a wholesome view so that you're finding wholesome things in this investigation rather than having an unwholesome view, which means that now we're going to find unwholesome things in our investigation. So we actually want to modify our view so that it becomes more wholesome, and we do that with modifying our thoughts. So the answer to your question, then, is is that, no, we don't come to conclusions. Because if we come to a conclusion, we're going to get, it's dangerous to come to conclusions. It is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not wholesome thought, right? Yeah. Right. uh, Having a a conclusion is, uh, okay, I know about all of this. I know what's going on here. It's not a very wholesome thought to have. Yeah. Falls apart, right, by definition. Let me take a look at this. Let me see what's going on here. Let me, let's investigate this. Let's do an investigation, okay? So that's a much more wholesome way of looking at it, is to continue to investigate thought by thought, moment by moment, because things change very quickly. And we don't come to conclusions until we get it, uh, over and over and over and over again. Um, like one kind of conclusion that would be a very wholesome conclusion to come to is when uh, the conclusion is met, then all doubt about the Buddhist path is eliminated. Now I know for absolutely sure that the path of the Buddha works. Because why? Because I've done it over and over and over and over again. But every time I do it again, I check it out. Yeah, it still works. Yeah, it still works. Okay. It's like any time. Here's a a little example, but it's a weird example. And that is is that a, a cigarette lighter does not light every time. It may be fully functioning, correctly functioning, but because of the wind, because of the atmosphere, because of all kinds of reasons, the lighter doesn't light the first time. And everybody knows that. So any time that somebody uses a lighter, the first thing that they do is they turn it on and see if it's lighting. Mm-hmm. And if it's it does, then up, they'll yeah. set something on fire. We don't just put, the, if it's a cigarette or whatever, we don't just uh, uh, turn the, the lighter on and, and apply it directly. We always check to see, is that fire there? Yeah. That's, but once we have uh, the conclusion that this fire comes, every time I strike that, that lighter, it, uh, that fire comes up. We know it, and we can trust it. But still, every time we turn the lighter on, we check it to see, is it on fire? We do, yeah. Okay, so this is a good example, then, of the kinds of things that we want to uh, uh, to check um, over and over again. Mm-hmm. That we don't just assume that it, uh, that it works. We always investigate. We always check it. And so is that, like, checking your mental state after the thought? And, like, am I suffering or am I not suffering when you yeah, wake up? Exactly. Yeah. Always that would be the thought is, how am I doing right now? 
that in fact the various things to investigate that are useful and wholesome and worthwhile investigating are actually the parts of the path that the Buddha talks about. For instance, uh, the investigation of how is my sati? Am I waking up quickly? Mm-hmm. How is my right view? Am I doing the investigation? How is my right effort? Am I actually throwing unwholesome stuff out and, and replacing it with wholesome stuff? Okay. How is my right attitude? Is yeah. my attitude the attitude of a winner or not? Okay. And so these are things that will be investigation, almost like a checklist of things that are part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Once we get ourselves then into the first jhana, which means that we not only have the, the right of language that we're talking to ourselves in the gladdening of the mind and the wholesome thoughts, but the wholesome thoughts themselves have a wholesome beneficial um, uh, aspect of the way that you feel. We begin to feel good. We begin to feel comfortable. Uh, not fear, but safety and security. Not pain, but comfort. Not dissatisfaction, but we have satisfaction now. With that, now we have something new to investigate this wholesome, and that is my satisfaction. How is my satisfaction? How is my safety and security? How is my comfort level? And we go down the line and check off, yeah, I got that one. Yep, that's it. Yep, really got it. Okay. And so uh, basically, we spend our time with right view of checking out all of these wholesome things, including our what are we feeling? How is our feelings? Can yeah. we take those yeah. feelings, those really, really good feelings, and make them really good but now really soft? They're not so exuberant anymore. They're not uh, so uh, uh, boisterous. Yeah, I get what you're um, saying, yeah. But you get into a very nice, easygoing, relaxed, really feeling good. Okay. And so how is that progress going? These are the kinds of things that are worthwhile uh, investigating. How is my enthusiasm? How is my view? But you see, if we have hindrances in the mind, then the only thing that's worth noting is those hindrances. Once the hindrance is out of the mind, now we have something that's really wholesome to the mind. Yeah. So I think the habit that I've had like growing up is when there is like any waking up or sati is like the like what's like called the parent ego, right? Or like the like is this moral comes to mind. But like these like metrics per se are much more present based, it sounds like and like that is this moral um, as we've talked about before, like honesty and dishonesty is like a bit of like um, it's unwholesome kind of, um, at least with what we've built up, because uh, those are based on our past, right? Well, when we talk about things as moral or not, we can look at it in two different ways. Yeah. We can look at it from the nurturing position or we can look at it from the critical position. Sure. Okay, and when we look at it from critical position, that's when uh, we start using the language that is used in this, in the sense of thou shalt not. Yeah. Okay, 
that means that our morality is not actually morality. It's a set of rules. It's a set of uh, guidelines. It's a set of critical uh, decision-making and that we become critical of ourselves. What we need to do is we need to nurture ourselves even in wrongdoing. The wrongdoing is not to be met with punishment or critical. It's to be met with nurturing and rehabilitation. Yeah. That this, you can say, not only is the teaching of the Buddha, but this is actually how the Sangha operates. That that was really a major, major um, training for me when I joined the Sangha and became a monk because uh, I was very critical and I found all kinds. I mean, I, I went right through life being critical of everything. Yeah. And it was only when I got to uh, watch Su and Mo where I, uh, my criticism was low enough that I would accept what they were doing, but I was still critical of certain monks. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn that no, don't be critical of other people. But the monks are not critical of each other. You don't go around saying, oh, that monk doesn't meditate, or oh, he doesn't know this, and I do, and that kind of stuff. But this is not only in the suits, but the monks actually live that. I know, because one time I criticized a particular Western monk, and um, that afternoon I got a visit by an entire delegation, most of the monks I I didn't know. But they had come to talk to me about that here in this Sangha, we don't criticize other people. That was a major, uh, I mean, they knew exactly what to do. Because yeah. that really impressed me, to not criticize other monks, to not criticize people in general. Why? Because our criticism is a habit. And we just go around criticizing all kinds of things without recognizing the damage that we're doing. And we are especially doing damage when we criticize ourselves. Yeah. That we punish ourselves for our own wrongdoing. You see, those monks did not come to me to punish me. They came to rehabilitate me, and that's what was the marvelous part about it. Yeah, that is come to put me down or to, uh, to fuss or uh, to fume or tell me I had done wrong or anything, that they came to nurture me into not um, criticizing others. Mm-hmm. And so this whole topic that I talk about to the students about nurturing and critical is built right into the rules of the Patty Mark. That monks don't criticize. That's one of the rules is that this monk does not go to that monk and say bad things about a third monk. You just don't do that. Because that's kind of built in with, I don't know, like dissatisfaction with what they're doing. Like something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But really what's wrong is my critical thinking. My <laughs> going Everything's around, okay, right? I'm yeah. decide who does what. <laughs> yeah. I've got a set of rules up here, you know, and I'm going to go around spewing those rules on everybody, no matter how much damage I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the normal way. Well, that's at that that kind of critical thinking is exactly the basis of the restlessness. Yeah. Because 
were nurturing yourself and not critical, you wouldn't be restless. Yeah, we can rest, yeah. But when we're restless, then you become critical of being restless. And they say, oh, you've got to go get that job done. You've got restless here, you know. If you don't go do that, you're going to have a whole lot of restlessness. And so now we just restless ourselves right on into doing stuff. And we do it restlessly and sometimes dangerously. So always we come back to the idea that we have to nurture. Everything is nurturing. Even when we recognize that we've done something wrong, we can rehabilitate ourselves and nurture ourselves, which means that now the confessions are easy. You see, in, in our society, you're not supposed to get caught wrongdoing because if you get caught wrongdoing, then they will punish you. And so you have machine, right? everything that you've done wrong. Yeah. Not only do you hide it from them, but if you're good at hiding it, you can hide it from yourself too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what we uh, in in the dispensation of the Buddha, when we're actually saying, okay, my newfound job, if I call it a job, or my new found toy to play with, is this dukkha dukkha naroda, which means that if I do wrong and I try to hide it, that's because I've already got myself into a set of dukkha because of my wrongdoing. And therefore, I try to hide it, and I make things worse, right? Yeah. Okay. So now I'm lying to myself. So now I've done two things. One is that I, I, I made a mistake. I did something wrong. And on the second one, now I'm lying about it. I'm trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. Well, where's the dukkha in all of this? It's all over the place. Yeah, and it's we, all unwholesome, right? Yeah. Right. And if we can see the dukkha... In that, now we could say, okay, there's two things. One is I'm not going to lie to myself about my wrongdoing. I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to see it. I'm going to take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that reduces at least half of the suffering right there is to own it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're not lying to ourselves about it anymore. We're not trying to hide it anymore. So owning up to it is the first thing. And then the second one would be, uh, the rehabilitation, well, now that I own that that's wrong, I'm going to now take the right effort in the future to not do that. That's going to, I'm going to put that item on my don't do it list. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so now we've gotten that rehabilitation. Before, if I hide that wrongdoing, then that means that I'm, I'm kind of lying to myself that it's okay that I did it. Yeah, so is that like a mix of like wrong view and then like a not enough right effort to actually like seek out the lies? Right. So in fact, we're exactly right back to the Eightfold Noble Path again. And that is just to wake up, investigate, recognize that that activity that I had just done or did in the past was unwholesome. And the only way to take it and make it wholesome is by renouncing it, getting rid of it, throwing it out, and replacing it with wholesome stuff of, wow, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is actually the little things of just what's in the mind in the moment while we're in meditation gets us actually prepared to do these big things of when we recognize that we've hurt somebody, we've done something wrong, 
we've done we've uh, made a mess, we've made a disaster, and so now we have to do something about it. And the answer is we're going to make it more wholesome, not cover it up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This, by the way, that I'm talking about is one of the stages, one of the knowledges. You could also go and call it one of the insights, one of the seven insights on on the path to Sotapai. And so um, a lot of people who claim, oh, my teacher said I was a Sotapai, or I think I'm a Sotapai, and they write that down in, in um, uh, Reddit or whatnot like that. They don't actually understand that the Buddha has an actual step-by-step path of going through. And uh, that step of uh, uh, dealing with wrongdoing and rehabilitation doesn't come until after our realization and understanding of what is dukkha. Okay, and so there's a sequence of events in there, but one of the middle points in there, number four out of the seven steps, is that when we do wrongdoing, we wake up to it, we realize it, we own it, and we rehabilitate with it. That in fact, uh, in the sutta, it talks about actually confessing to your teacher or to some senior monk. In other words, you don't just go tell anybody. An example of that is, is that if you do a crime, it's good to confess it, but not to a cop. They're like they, they're not equipped with the right materials to actually help you fix it, right? With the right material of rehabilitation. They don't want to rehabilitate you, they want to punish you. That's their job. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it, what you're looking to do to yourself. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly so, that when we confess our, our, our wrongdoing, we want to make sure that we're confessing it to someone who will help us get out of it, get over it, stop doing it, and rehabilitate. Mm-hmm. And yet our whole entire prison system in the United States is not designed to bound rehabilitation at all. It's designed to bound punishment. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what makes the, the, the saga unique, that in fact, in all organizations, if you do do what the, uh, uh, what the organization bylaws or the people in the top of the organization say, they'll kick you out. Mm-hmm. All, almost never does that happen within the sangha. I was quite impressed one time within the Lao community when I was around the situation uh, to where um, uh, a particular monk was accused of parajika. And I was surprised that it was fairly easy to understand that this was probably true, but the monks didn't do anything about it. Mm. Why? Because he had already rehabilitated himself before we found out about it. Part of the rehabilitation was that he actually moved out of the Wad in Chicago and moved to the Wad in Charlotte to get out of the situation. So that he could rehabilitate himself. So that was quite an eye-opening for me because I went around confused. Why don't they punish that monk? Why don't they punish that monk? The answer is monks don't punish monks. Yeah. Because they rehabilitate. rehabilitate. (laughs) Yeah. The goal is not to like reinforce the common machine. It's to reduce suffering, right? Or reduce dukkha. So. Exactly, because punishment is just more dukkha. Yeah, and, and a police officer doesn't have under, that understanding, but a teacher does. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. And so it's a it's a complete mindset of let's come out of the dukkha. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this gives rise then to the Western concept of uh, doing bad for a good result. Mm, yeah. Uh, the worst case of that would be um, doctors working for Hitler going into the concentration camp and getting uh, prisoners and taking them into the medical lab to do experiments on them. Mm-hmm. That actually happened. Yeah, and they had the, they were able to justify within themselves that they were doing bad they for a good result. Their mistreatment of the uh, the animals or the people, rather, uh, because they were expecting a good outcome, and so this is the the idea of the means justify the end. Mm-hmm. Well, in the Buddha Dhamma, guess what? There's ever there's no end. There's the only thing we now. have is means, and there has to be skillful means. Never worry about the the outcome or the end of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that we don't take unskillful or unwholesome uh, 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 means in order to get to a skillful end, that's not possible. So, how would you suggest then that the doctors approach that? What would be like, what would the Buddha's past suggest? Uh, in the worst case scenario, I think that the doctor should sneak out the back door while Hitler's not watching. Mm-hmm. Get lost. Yeah. Get out of that situation. Get away from the Duke because you can't change it. And, and if s- no doctors are there to experiment on the people because all the doctors have found a way out the back door, then those experiments will stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the Duca, like we, th- we think of things from a very personal sense. So like it's the... Like their dukkha is when that thought comes up, like this is a bad thing. Like that thought still comes out, even if they're pushing it away, it's still there, right? So that's still dukkha. Yes, exactly so. But as you investigate, as you continue with your right noble investigation, you'll begin to see dukkha in places that you didn't see it before. Okay, which means now we have to make a new cost-benefit analysis based upon the fact that we now see new cost. Yeah, I've been starting to see that a little bit. And so as we uh, improve, our skill ability changes to determine and detect what is wholesome, what is not wholesome, and so we go more and more and more in the direction of the wholesome. This is part of the reason why I want students in their very beginning to start off with wholesome thoughts that are absolutely wholesome, mm-hmm. without a doubt, no doubt about it, uh, uh, the, these are wholesome thoughts, in the sense of, wow, isn't this nice? Yeah. Everything is okay, no place to go, nothing to do, everything is all right, no work needs to be done, everything is okay right now. These are really, really super-duper wholesome thoughts. These are the kind of thoughts that the Buddhists have. So, um, one thought that comes off, we talked about, like, grabbing business and stuff before. Um, it's, because of all that's unwholesome, it's 
um, likely that the student will come across like a point where um, they realize that, or I don't know, you could talk to me about this, but um, that like the income they're earning that's earned unwholesomely um, and that there's a change maybe to be made? Mm-hmm. Actually, every young man that I have ever talked to or anyone who is, gets into the Dhamma, eventually they get into asking those questions in the sense of, is my livelihood wholesome? Is this job that I'm spending so many hours a day at, is it actually wholesome? Mm-hmm. That in fact, as we improve, um, we begin to recognize there's a whole group of professions that I would not do. Uh, an example of that would be law enforcement, a judge, uh, a jury, a um, prison guard. These are the kind of jobs that we, you would see as, as quite unwholesome. I actually at one time had a job as a um, uh, systems administrator, including network administration, and I quit that job mm-hmm. because I recognized that the organization that I was working for was not wholesome. So it happened in yeah. the local um, uh, cadre of the United States Army. Mm. And I had that job, and I worked at that job, and 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 did that, and uh, it didn't take long to recognize these people that I'm working around are not my kind of people. So, what jobs then are wholesome? Well, gosh. I would say we would go in the direction of um, the less effort that it takes, the better. Mm-hmm. And the less lying that it takes, the better. And also uh, working with people that are wholesome. So I would go so far as to say that in general, um, the job of a psychologist that would be a much more wholesome profession than a gangster. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Why? Because the psychologist has at least some uh, intention of benefit and welfare for their clients, where the gangster has absolutely no interest in the welfare and the benefit of the guy he's robbing. Yeah. Both of them are thieves. But the psychologist at least has the welfare and the benefit of the person that they're taking money from. So part of the sangha is like a way out from like needing that income, right? Actually, yes. That's exactly what the sangha was uh, designed to do. The sangha had several benefits. And the Buddha was masterful in the way that he set up the sangha. Masterful in the sense that that is the oldest organization in the world. It really is. It's uh, the Buddha Sangha is widespread. There are right now more people that are members of the Buddha Sangha than there are people in the military worldwide. Mm-hmm. 
right this very minute, there are more Buddhist monks and nuns on this planet Earth than there are military people in uniform. Yeah. About six million. Wow. About six million. And, and uh, the United States Army has a little over a million. I think that North Korea has about a million. They've got three or four countries in there that's gotten something close to a million. Uh, China nowhere near in there. There's less than a half a million in their uh, armed forces. So all together, in uniform, military, there is more people in the, uh, dressed in Buddhist robes than there are people dressed in Army military uniform. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That shows that the Buddha did something right <laughs> with his zaga. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Yeah. And not only that, but it's been around for 2,500 years. No military, not one. Yeah. Is, is that old? They always it's, rise and fall, right? If the Peloponnesian Wars were, the Greek army that is today is nothing like the Greek army ever was way back when. But there were times when Greeks didn't have an army. Okay, the same is with the Italian army today is nothing like the Roman army 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the Buddha Sangha of today is exactly like it was 2,500 years ago. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I'm really impressed when I think about that. And the reason for it is because it's built on the wholesome. Yeah. Wholesome relationships between the monks. Wholesome relationships between the monks and the society that they live in. And part of that is wholesome, right, livelihood. Now, um, there is actually a set of suttas as well as the Vinaya, but the one that I'm thinking about is the one in the Dinganakaya. The first sutta there actually spends most of the sutta, about half of the sutta, talking about the various professions that have to do with magic. Mm-hmm. That the Buddha does not allow the monks to tell fortunes, to roll bones, to roll dice. In fact, here's an interesting po- uh, side point. Do you know where dice came from? No. Have you ever heard them called bones? No, I haven't. Okay. The dice are actually the knuckle bones. Oh, really? The dice that were rolled were knuckle bones. Would they have, and they'd have like consistent sides they'd land on? Is the idea the knuckle well, bone? It, no, it was the fact that they were six sided squares. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's what, uh, so the knuckle bones were the first uh, uh, dice, which we're talking about gambling here. And so the oh. Buddha actually talking about to avoid gambling to avoid fortune telling to avoid um um doing things for people that have to do with the past and the future an example of that would be nowadays uh people do seances the buddha would uh prohibit monks from uh attending or being a part of a seance Mm -hmm. because this is all magical stuff Okay, so any kind of, and you can see that in the time of the Buddha, in fact, that you can see it today. Even in Thailand, lay people, before they buy the lottery tickets, will go to a monk for numbers. As if the monk has a better idea about the numbers than the lottery man or the, uh, uh, the lottery ticket buyer can pull out of the air. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what those things are going to be. No, it's magic. 
Okay, it's magic, exactly. And so the Buddha forget, uh, uh, prohibits um, any of that kind of stuff, any magical stuff, any any bones, any um, uh, ruins, any. Um, um, Another one they have is uh, they hold it in. A, you can actually do dice in a cup, and so you roll them around on the cup, and then you turn the cup over. There's also little sticks uh, that they put in a cup that has writing on it for fortunes. Mm-hmm. And so the the monk will stir up that set of sticks, and then you'll pick a stick out of it, and that stick will have written on it your fortune. Yeah. Okay, these are the kinds of things that the that the that the Buddha prohibited the monks from from doing. And I know of a monk in the United States in the Lao culture. He's got an old beat up car, and in the back of the beat up car uh, is actually a station wagon. And he opens the tailgate, and there is sitting a big concrete. Um, representation of the Buddha's foot. You talk about the Buddha's footprints. They're all over Asia. Some of them are in temples, but almost always they're exaggerated in size and it's got uh, wheels and stuff on it that real feet don't have and whatnot. And so this monk has this um, uh, plaster cast of this concrete cast of this giant foot that he's got in, in the, uh, the back of his car. And he goes around from what to what, getting uh, lay people to give him money so that he can do some chanting while he's got that footprint of the Buddha in the back of his, of his truck. And guess what? He's itinerant because none of the monks who are in charge of the watch in the United States want to let him stay there for very long. Mm-hmm. They don't want him to move in. Yeah. Because he's not practicing according to the teachings of the Buddha. But they let him stay a monk. They let him stay a monk. It's okay that he's a monk. This is what that monk does, but we don't do that stuff here. Is that like the re- uh, re- rehabilitation, like they're not being critical? or Right, they're not being critical of him, but they will point out that this is not the right livelihood of the Buddha. If you want to do this stuff, you go do it someplace else. Well, I eventually heard several years later that this guy actually was allowed to stay in a, in a lot, and the reason for it was because his car broke down. And because his car broke down, there was no place for him to go in his car, and nobody had given him enough money to, uh, uh, to get the car running again. And so he just kind of stopped doing it. Okay. So he just kind of stopped doing it. Yeah. That's a very interesting thing. And so in within the Sangha, even if a monk is habitually committing wrongdoing, the monks will um, kind of put up with it. Mm-hmm. Knowing that he can be rehabilitated. And guess what? Eventually he was. <laughs> <laughs> But I was very curious about all of that when it when it when it was going on when it when it happened, and that's why I eventually found out uh, that all oh, he's in he's in Dallas now. He's staying in Dallas because his car broke down in Dallas. But now he's not doing that magic stuff anymore. And so this is the path that you know you're 
recommending and trying to open up for your Western students, right, is like once you start to realize the unwholesomeness, um, there are lots around the U.S. to stay. Right. There's a lot of unwholesomeness out there, but it's not your job to stop them from being unwholesome. All you'll do is add your unwholesome desires of them stop stop being unwholesome. That you just let them be. Like, um, or, yeah, so, like, it's understood that as part of the path, one might, um, like, start to realize the unwholesomeness and, like, the, like, business world and such. Um, so, like, that's the purpose of these Watts and such, and why you, um, like, with the open Sangha stuff, um, like, that's, like, a path that the Westerners can take where, they need to rely less on that, like, business side of things, right? Or, like, income. Yes. But this is something that we don't have in Western Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We have the Dhamma, but the Dhamma has been translated into English incorrectly. And that most of the teachers uh, have not dealt with the wholesome, unwholesome issues in their own life. Basically, the teachings of the Buddha come in threes. Almost everything comes in threes. Okay. Okay. Um, so in uh, when things come in threes like that, if you only get one of them, it's like sitting on a one-legged stool. <laughs> the one-legged stool is, is uh, uh, dangerous. In fact, your feet have to be the other two legs. You, you can, if you've got a three-legged stool, you can take your other leg, your legs off, and, and the stool will hold you up. But if you've got a one-legged stool, you have to use your other two legs for the uh, for the stool because the stool itself only has one leg. Okay, the stool of Western Buddhism has only one day, one leg, and it's defective. Yeah. That one leg is the Dhamma. What are the two legs that Western Buddha does, Buddhism doesn't have is the Dhamma, or excuse me, the Buddha and the Sangha. Mm -hmm. Where in Asia, the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha were spread with a, with a stool that had all three legs. In the sense that a senior monk who knew the teachings of the Buddha and could represent the Buddha uh, would take a group of monks with him, and he would take his Sangha. So the Buddha and the Sangha would go to spread the Dhamma in, say, Thailand from India. Yeah. That didn't happen in the, in the West. It came as an intellectual exercise. Many people even call the teachings of the Buddha a philosophy, as yeah. opposed to religion. It is not a philosophy. It's a lifestyle, period. Mm -hmm. It's not a philosophy, because people yeah. can philosophize yeah. all kinds of unwholesome things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the big definition of philosophy is like, you know, trying to reduce the unwholesome and unwholesome things, it feels like. Exactly, exactly so. So, if we can find a way of building Sangha in the West, so that people can actually find... Um, it, it goes along with this. Uh, the sea that you swim in determines your own chemistry. 
okay? The, the uh, freshwater fish do not fare well if you put them in salt water and vice versa. Mm. Which also means that if you spend most of your day and all of your evenings in a bar, you will become a bar fly. Yeah. If you spend all of your time in a gym, you will become muscle bound. Mm -hmm. If you spend all of your time in a boxing ring, you're going to be striking a lot of stuff. Okay? If you spend your time around nobles, your mind will become noble also. I've seen that happen too. It takes a while. But when you when you live around nobles and behave with nobles in a noble way, that nobility rubs off. If you are born into a Christian family, then Christianity rubs off. If you are born into a mafia family, then mafia rubs off. Whatever you're around is going to affect you, uh, especially if there is ignorance of that effect. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so important and valuable, for instance, for people who are joining AA and and can see the danger in alcohol and are wanting to come out of their alcohol addiction. The first thing that they want to do is stay out of the bars. They don't associate with their old friends anymore. Now they're associating with uh, AA friends who are helping them stay sober. If they go back to the bar and associate with the friends there, those friends are going to help them get drunk again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is the why the need for the sangha. And, and in fact, I, I highly promote whenever two students uh, meet each other on, on Skype, they should continue that relationship. I want my students and my friends to know each other in a wholesome way because they will interact and gain benefit from each other. That if you talk to somebody on Skype and that's, that person doesn't know that you have been talking to me on Skype or have a, a meditation teacher, then you can just say anything to them because you don't care. But if yeah. you know that that guy is actually in the Dhamma also, now you're going to be working to make sure that your relationship with him is wholesome. Sure. Yeah. You'll yeah. be a now lot more careful. Got it. Now we get it now. Okay, so now we begin to understand that friendship is the whole of the Dhamma, and that friendship among noble friends is the right way to have friendship, mm -hmm. is, to, is to deal with nobles. Or if you're dealing with ordinary people, deal with them as if you were noble, because if you don't, you're going to start acting ordinary like they do. Yeah. So you have to be on guard when you're around ordinary people, but when you are around nobles, it's just natural for you to be noble. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. This is the value of the Sangha. And the Sangha then will help regenerate. And also on the other side of it is the Buddha, is, is that most of the people who teach meditation in the West, how to say it, I don't want to give a long list of names, but I know about five or six in the sense of this guy criticized that guy, that guy criticized this guy, this guy criticized both that guy and this guy, and now we hear a lot of criticism about the first guy. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
in other words, what we're saying is is that um, the Dhamma teachers of the West wind up competing with each other over who's the best Dhamma teacher because they've got money in the game. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to send my students to you because if you get the money, then I don't. And so I don't want my students to go to you. Well, you see, good education is not set up that way at all. A university, when a student goes to a university, he doesn't have just one teacher in that university. He's got sometimes six or seven at a time. The same yeah. thing is in grade school, that the, the first grade teacher and the second grade teacher, they don't fight with each other over who's the better teacher because they're all teaching the same, they're both teaching the same group of students. Yeah, and that payment isn't directly from that student, right? Right, so, and not only that, but then mathematicians also, that if you have a mathematic conference and one of them is speaking and someone in the audience asks them a question, their first answer will always be, well, Professor Blojo over there, he knows this topic better than I do, but here's my opinion of it. All right. Western teachers in Buddhism, we don't do that. No. We're still at that ordinary level. We need some nobles in here. Well, guess what? There are nobles. Mm -hmm. How many nobles? I'd say probably at least 400 nobles in uh, the United States alone. Why? Because these are the abbots of the Thai temples, the Lao temples, the Cambodian temples, and these Asian people. When they go to populate their temples with monks, they know who to look for. And so yeah. you have some very, very high-quality monks in the United States. And when I was a monk in the U.S. traveling around, I began to appreciate just how high-quality, high-class these noble monks are. Mm -hmm. And yet when the Westerners want to have friends, where do they go? They go to the Dharma teacher who is going to charge them $2,000 for a retreat. Yeah. Yeah. And there's better places to go. This is what the Open Sangha Foundation is for, or the Open Sangha Collective, is for us to get together as students, noble students, so that we can foster each other in a noble way and direct each other towards these high-quality noble monks in these watts that people don't even think about. Yeah. They think about, oh, I want Dhamma, let me buy a book. Oh, I want Dhamma, let me go to the Reddit. Oh, I want Dhamma, let me go listen to a YouTube. All right? No, if you want Dhamma, go to the Watt. That's where you're going to find the nobles. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so this is, and so those who want to become teachers in the Dhamma, Right now, their only option is is to go to Jack or to one of the others, Vince Horn and, and a few, and pay for a teacher's training program that winds up with a certificate. Once they have paid for their education, all they've got is that certificate. If that young man, instead of paying and, and working at a living, so that he can get up that $6,000 or whatever the teacher training is. He just goes and makes friends at the Watt, stays at the Watt, spends a night or two at the Watt, eventually moves into the Watt. Now he's got free room and board, and he's with nobles, and that he wants to start teaching the Dhamma. Now he's got a place where he can have meditation retreats because he's got the Watt. The Watts are an enormous resource. Yeah, yeah. And we're not using it. 
We don't use that resource. And so the watts, it sounds like, are very wholesome. And if not, one watt's not wholesome. There are many watts. Um, there are many watts that would be wholesome. And so that would be the right thing to do is to go investigate and go. Like if you're in a big city like Chicago, in Chicago, uh, there's at least 10 Thai watts just right down on the riverside or on the, uh, uh, the, uh, by the lake right downtown. But within the greater Chicago area, within 30-minute uh, drive, there's probably 25 uh, watts. They're all over the place. It's amazing that, in fact, I was quite surprised when I was talking to Achan Reed, who is the abbot of uh, Wat Atamaya Tirana in uh, Seattle. I know it's a long name. We just shortened it to Wat Atama. But he was saying that right now, currently, there are more than 200 watts, Thai watts, in the United States. And I already wow. knew that with more than 100 Laotian watts and more than uh, 50 Cambodian watts. But they're kind of stable. But the Thai community is building more and more and more and more watts. So the unwholesome or anxious part of my mind tells me that I wouldn't be welcome there, but it sounds like just showing up and stuff would be just fine. That's exactly correct. That's the thing that's so amazing is, is that in our Western mentality, we can see the various hurdles. A hurdle is going to be language. A hurdle is going to be culture. A hurdle is going to be some of the lay people there. But basically, we can go through those hurdles and go right to the top. And I would say that the top is two ways. One is the monks, and the other one is the old ladies. Make friends with the old Thai ladies at the Wat, because they're the ones who actually secretly run the place. And if you're on the side of the old ladies, you're in. So my instinct with that leg anxiety it's been trained to like work harder and stuff. And instead of, it sounds like it'll like, it will be easy. It's just about pushing away those unwholesome thoughts and, you know, being friendly. Mm -hmm. And just be friendly. So we go in, walk in friendly, be friendly, uh, talk about the Dhamma cause you know, some Dhamma mm -hmm. and, um, uh, just make friends there. That's all we have to do. The whole show is all about friendship. That's what the saga really is all about. We're just friends. In fact, the entire teaching of the Buddha is all about friendship. Making friends with yourself, making friends with uh, nobles, and making friends with the whole world. So there's no need, is what you're saying, to jump through all those hurdles that my mind creates. Mm -hmm. Those are just hindrances. Recognize that those are unwholesome hindrances. Yeah, just walk past them. Yeah, No need to jump over the hurdles. Exactly. Yeah. But these are cultural centers. They're cultural in the sense that the Thai people wanted a little bit of Thailand. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? They're good at it. So that these are really cultural centers. When you go to a Thai Wat, most of the uh, language is going to be in Thai language. There will be people who speak English. But most of the people are going to speak Thai. They go to the Wat to speak Thai. They have to speak English out in the world anyway. So they go to the Wat. Not only that, but the food that they uh, that they bring to the Wat is to them the most authentic. The most Thai is the best. 
We want real Thai food here, even if it's not as good or as healthy. But in fact, generally good Thai food, real Thai food is more healthy than Western food anyway. Yeah, yeah. But it'll look strange. <laughs> Some of it is really strange. And so we can get over the fact that the food is strange. We can get used to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when the food is strange, the language is strange, the culture is strange, and there's a whole lot of furniture in the Wat that looks magical. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the monks are going to be magical because everything that's in that Wat was brought into that Wat by lay people, not the monks. Mm -hmm. Monks didn't bring anything, except maybe their bowl and their robe. (laughs) (laughs) Or a cell phone occasionally. But other than that, all of that statuary and all of that gaudy stuff was put in there by lay people. Yeah, yeah. And so don't let all of the gaudiness and all the the stuff that you see uh, put you off. Okay. Okay. To recognize that there's there's some nobility here. There has to be. Mm-hmm. The, the, how, Thai people, yeah. the Asian people, they know how to go find monks. Where does it range between like the amount of monks? Because um, I've explored some of the Facebook pages, and it seems like some Watts in Arizona have like one monk, and some have like five or six. I would say it has to do with the population of the Asian community in a particular location, and the more uh, uh, Asian people then the more monks they can support and also the more monks that they would think that they need in order to have that support. Mm-hmm. Okay. The typical monk or the typical what in the United States will have from four to seven monks and occasionally more than that. Uh, in, in the big, big watch, like one of them, for instance, that I know uh, uh, in Fremont, California, Achan Pursert is the abbot, and there he has about 20 monks. Mm-hmm. The watt in Los Angeles, the very big watt in Los Angeles, has between 20, sometimes 40, and sometimes 60 monks, depending upon the, the Ponza time. That a lot of monks will go to that watch for Ponza. Okay, and so that watt has got probably the most, the one in Los Angeles. But with 200 watts uh, in the United States, you're going to have that variety of, there's many of them going to have one monk, because that's all the people can support. And in fact, in North Carolina, uh, we're, we're talking about now 15 years ago, I don't know what's happening there now, but 15 years ago, there were approximately 20 watts with approximately 40 to 50 monks. Mm -hmm. But some watts had more than others. That in fact, the the Burmese watt only had one monk. Yeah. Because there's not that many Burmese people in North Carolina, so they had one monk. But the Lao people, because they had thousands, they had the most watts in North Carolina. The Thais only had, let's see, in North Carolina, there's a Taiwan in Raleigh, one in Wilmington, one in Fayetteville. I think there's only like three Taiwats. But the Cambodian watch, there's at least six of them. And, really? uh, and in Laos, they've got the most. Okay. Uh, so that's how it goes. 
uh, depending upon the number of lay people in the community and whatnot like that. Uh, but the watch in, in the United States are generally um, not chock-a-block full of monks. That mm-hmm. normally the monks in the United States, the watch are big enough so that every monk will have private room. That's normally how it goes because monks like privacy. And so, uh, in fact, that was one of the issues at uh, uh, what Fremont was that they had more monks than they could actually house. Okay. And so uh, that was an issue. So it has to do with uh, how big the watt is and how uh, much room they have. And that has to do with the size of the lay community. Mm-hmm. So it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. So as a lay person, to stay at a watt, um, you talked about eventually, or just like sitting in the meditation hall and then eventually sleeping a night in the meditation hall? Yeah. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can spend the night. Um, make some friends there. Make sure that you know yeah, the people, first, so yeah. that they know you. Uh, at least introduce yourself to everyone. Find out which ones that you're going to get the most benefit from. Here's something that is often done. I did it myself. Uh, Eric has talked about doing it, and that is, is that the abbot of the Watt often will be invited for ceremonies in people's houses. Mm-hmm. If you've got a car, then you can offer him to be his driver whenever he goes out, and that'll give you an opportunity to have some private time with the abbot of the Watt. And it'll give you a great opportunity to ask him questions and get some Dhamma. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So that's, that's, that's uh, an advantage that we can, can think of. And, and this is the kind of information that people need so that they could feel comfortable that they can walk right into the Watt and take over. Yeah. And feel at home there. I belong in this place. That's mm-hmm. the feeling that we want to have is to not have the feeling of being an outsider or a stranger but rather to feel like that you fit in. And that doesn't take long, especially if you do it wisely, mindfully, mm-hmm. skillfully. Mm-hmm. And so that you can go and visit a few watts and whatnot like that, and you'll find that the monks are extraordinarily friendly. They've been practicing friendship. They know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's quite amazing. It's hard for me to describe um, how um, things begin to to change for a Westerner once he actually starts to um, take the effort to put himself into these uh, noble environments that actually do exist in the West. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend that. What city do you live in, by the way? Um, I live in Tempe, Arizona. Where? Tempe, Phoenix, that area. In Phoenix, yes. There's got to be, in fact, I'm sure of it, in Phoenix, there's got to be uh, Thai Watts. Mm-hmm. So you could just, you, you can actually do this. You can go to Google or whatever search engine and type in uh, Phoenix Buddhism. Okay. 
Yeah. And that'll start bringing stuff up for you to start looking at. Then you can think of other words to uh, uh, like Thai Wat or uh, Thai Temple. Those are the kinds of words that you would Google always with the word Phoenix in it. And you'll find them. Awesome. Yeah. Once you do that, you can start visiting them. And if you after you visit two or three of them, you can call me and we can discuss it. And then if, uh, if you find one that you want to move into, then uh, let me know. And uh, Robert and I will set up a, uh, a call to the abbot of that temple to uh, give him a sales pitch about you. Awesome. Which is exactly the Asian way of doing it. That we always have intermediates, we have agents, we have a group of people, a community always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Robert is really good with that. He lives, out, by the way, here in Thailand. He speaks excellent Thai. Almost really? made it. Right. And he knows a lot of the abbots in the United States. He and I, uh, we talk to the abbots on a regular basis. We know this. This is, I mean, we've already put proof of concept. With Eric, Eric spent about six months at uh, uh, Watt Washington uh, during the COVID crisis because um, uh, Watt Atamayata Rama uh, was closed for, but it's not the monks who close it, it's the lay people. The lay people run the Watt. The monks are just guests there. And then, yeah, that gets rid of the the fear that you know, Western often have of like, I need the room and board. I need money to not die or right. The self-preservation. Well, there it is. Right. All you have to do is walk into the lot and make some friends. And there you are. You've got your room and board. All right. Cool. All you have to do is live a wholesome life. And guess what? <laughs> if you are unwholesome, then your greed will be such that you'll want to move out of the temple, and then the monks didn't have to do anything to get rid of you. There you went. <laughs> you're off going. You're wanting something. <laughs> yeah. And so they really have to uh, to put up with people that they don't want to because the people who they don't want to be in the white don't want to be there anyway. <laughs> And so if you want to be there, then you'll fit in for sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. And it sounds, yeah, like all the thoughts that I'm that come up, fears and stuff, it, it, like the life of a monk is a lot of time, or the goal is doing nothing, right? So it's not like there's like major like schedule differences that I'll have to prepare for. Or, yeah. Exactly. So I encourage young men like yourself to go investigate these temples. They're very wholesome places to spend time. Great, yeah. That's why they should not be called temples. No, they're they're not. If you think about what do you do at a temple, right? You pay the priest, you take in a goat and let let the priest kill it. So what was the origin of the word Wat? The word Wat actually is a Thai word that is a contraction of the Pali word for Vihara, except that the Wat, the Wa, comes because the Thai language doesn't have the V sound. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know enough about German, you'll know that the German doesn't have the letter V, uh, the letter W, but they do have the letter V, and the letter V sounds like a W. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's the source of why that W is there, is because it's part of the Thai language, and the B is um, said as a W sound. So uh, the word, for instance, a very, very common, popular, everyone who has been to Bangkok knows of the name of the road, Sukhumvit Road. Except the Thai people don't have a Sukhumvit Road. They have a Sukhumvit Road. Okay. It's with a W, even though it's spelled specifically with a V. Mm-hmm. But it's pronounced the W sound because of the German. Okay, so now that we know that, we got the W sound, and the word Vihara is contracted into what? Uh, the word Hara is the same word in English language as the word heart. Mm-hmm. And in the in the Pali and the Sanskrit, the word is hara, and that hara actually means the home, the heart, the place where you have. Okay, so you're at home. So word vihara means at home, mm-hmm. or in the house, or in home. That's what it word means, and that contraction is uh, the word what in Thai language. The word what means the home of the monks. So they were they originally cropped up as part of the sangha, right? Where it was the purpose was to house monks or right. celebrate in a sense, yeah. But actually, the housing got started uh, in the time of the Buddha, but became institutionalized in the time of the Soap. When the Buddha first started the sangha. He talked about um, the forest, a root of a tree, an empty hut. Mm -hmm. And hut, that's where it gets started is the hut. The word in Pali for the word hut is actually the word kuti. And in Thailand, that's where the monks live. They live in their kuti. Mm -hmm. The kuti is the little hut. And when you put a whole bunch of kutis together, because you've got a lot of monks, then that would be... um, in that realm, but you can see how things get out of hand when they collect together. So monasteries or collections of of watts, uh, excuse me, of huts can be done to where you have first and second floor. You've got a great big building that's got a lot of bedrooms to it. But that evolved, and it evolved when they had almost had way too many months. But in the beginning. No housing was necessary. Mm-hmm. So what we need is protection from the weather. Yeah. And if you can get enough protection from the weather, then that's all you need. Well, guess what? It doesn't get cold here, so we don't need the kind of housing that uh, takes care of cold weather. But in fact, we don't even need walls. All we need is shelter from the rain. And if yeah. you've got shelter yeah. from the rain, we're good to go. And that's, you can see where I live. I live on a porch. All I've got is just the roof above. Everything else is open. Yeah. So this is how the monks generally live in Thailand, is as much outdoors as, as they can and still have protection from the rain. Mm. Okay. But when the monks come to the West... They come at invitation to the lay people, and the lay people are now living in America and doing any and everything they can to get a walk together. More than likely, what they're going to do is just buy some residential piece of property 
and then turn it into a rock and then deal with the government about the fact that you've got a religious organization here in the neighborhood. Yeah. Okay, that's the way that the Thai work. They don't care about what the zoning laws are. They just buy a piece of property they can afford, and they turn it into a watch, and then they yeah. deal with in the the government. Yeah, do and then ask for permission, right? You can do it without permission, right? You don't need permission. Yeah. And so uh, that's the, the the Asian way of doing things, and so because of that. That's how the watch have gotten started, which is the housing that they have is appropriate for the culture that those houses exist in. But if it's got a really, really big backyard, the Thai people are going to build a sala or a, a kuti or something there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. So when I go in, the intention... Um, is just to be friendly and then um, um, just make friends and realize that the environment isn't as dangerous as my mind thinks it is. Right. It's not a dangerous environment at all. The only danger is in, is in your own mind of the fear of, I don't fit in here. Yeah. But if you stay long enough, you will fit in. So is an average average day perfect to do that? There doesn't need to be some celebration or anything? I would say that the days to do it, if you've already gone to the what because of the celebration, then that's okay, that's good. But I would recommend uh, in general to show up probably on the weekend and to show up about 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay. 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekend means that now you're there in order uh, to talk to the monks for an hour or so before lunch, which means you'll probably get invited to lunch. And when you're at lunch, that means that lay people will be there. And the, uh, especially on Saturday, the people who bring food to the monks are going to be the most notable or the most dedicated of the ones who actually run the watch. Okay. Okay, so these are the secret ingredients that you need. Saturday at 10 a.m., that's the time to show up at the watch because there will be all the right people for you to meet. Cool. And on Sunday is also, but on Sunday there will be even more people. So Saturday and Sunday is a good day to show up at 10 o'clock. And most people, even if they have a job and they say, I can't show up at 10 o'clock in the morning, you don't have to do it only every day. But the first time that you show up, the best time to show up is at 10 in the morning. Is it, do I act like I know my way around or do I like be friendly and ask for like where to go? Um, yeah, you can go on your own, how do you say it? Just like you could go to a museum. There's two ways to go to a museum. One is just to walk in and take a gander. Mm-hmm. The other way is to go and join a guided tour. Right? Don't expect any guided tours at the watch. Okay. Don't expect that. 
just go in and take a look around. Um, if you're going to look for something, look for old monks. The older, the better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you can, if you meet anyone, you can just say hi. I'm I'm here to see what's happening. Uh, my name is blah blah. What's yours? And just start at that. Uh, most anybody eventually within a few minutes will want you to meet either the temple abbot or one of the lay people who uh, would be a board of deacons or someone in charge like that. Okay. And so they'll take care of you. They will. They will not meet you at the door with a shotgun. Believe me, that doesn't happen. (laughs) They will not say, what do you want here? Now, what door to go in is the door that has the most shoes at it. Because the the Asians don't wear shoes indoors. Okay. Okay, so go to the door that has the most shoes, and that's the door that you go in. If you go to a door that's got no shoes at it, don't don't try to go in that door. Go to a door that's got shoes in front. Do they wear socks? Pardon? Do they wear socks? It's okay for you to wear socks indoors. It depends upon the time of the year. But yes, even the lay people and uh, even monks sometimes will be wearing socks inside. But what footwear you wear, uh, I would say for myself that I would want to wear sandals or slippers or something that I could take off very easily rather than having to sit down and untie and unlace shoes to take them off. Yeah. Okay. So that that's the way that uh, uh, to go about. I lost your face cam. Okay, there you're back. Excellent. Well, Parker, let me know. Let me see what happens because uh, this is the weekend for you. You can go tomorrow. Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll check it out. Okay. Excellent. Well, let's finish this conversation now. This has been great. We've been yeah. talking about wholesome thoughts, and that's the important thing, is to think about wholesome thoughts. And talk, think about going to the water is going to be a very wholesome thing. Mm-hmm. Make some friends. Great. Okay. Thank you. Good to see you again, Parker. Good to see you again. And congratulations for making progress. You're you're on your way. Thank you. Good to see you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.